KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, you might think Republicans would take a breather after banning abortion in the states they control, but no. Instead, they're setting their sights on a new target, no-fault divorce. Katha Pollitt will report. Also, historian Brenda Stevenson will talk about the black family under slavery and after. Her book, A History of the Enslaved Family in America, is What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast. Finally, we have an episode of Your Minnesota Moment. The state joins national popular vote. But first, Cornell West should not be running for president. That's what a lot of our friends are saying, including Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She's also author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? And the co-producer of a wonderful documentary, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. She served as editor-in-chief of Salon for six years. She's been a commentator on MSNBC and CNN, and she's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the LA Times. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. Well, what do you think about Cornell West in general, setting aside for the moment the fact that he announced last week he's running for president? They're almost inseparable for me because I feel like he's been on kind of an odd ego trip that's destructive to the to what I think he truly values, which is greater income equality and less total power for capitalism. Um, you know, you and I have had many conversations about the flaws of the Democratic Party. They are real. They are many. But in this system of government, there are only two real parties. And if you decide to run a third party, you always take votes away from the party that's closest to you ideologically. And while I'm sure he would say that Democrats aren't close to him at all at this point, that's the party he might hurt. Although this run seems so ill-advised and ill-informed, it might not hurt anybody. So just to review, in his announcement, he said he's running as a third party candidate because, quote, neither political party wants to tell the truth about Wall Street, about Ukraine, about the Pentagon, about big tech. And he told Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! last week, quote, the milquetoast neoliberal Democratic Party strikes me as being incapable of taking seriously the fundamental needs of poor and working people, not just here, but around the world, close quote. Now, as you've said, we know these criticisms. We have a lot of these same criticisms, but we think the way to fight for this is inside the Democratic Party. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was not a, a Bernie Sanders supporter, but I've supported both of his runs for the uh, nomination. And I think certainly in 2020, you can see that he had a very positive impact on Joe Biden, moving him from what I what is probably fair to call neoliberalism to a much more full-throated endorsement of Wall Street regulation, of social spending, forgiving student loans as much as possible, really becoming the most pro-worker, pro-struggling person probably since FDR. I agree. I agree. You know, it wasn't just Bernie. It was also it was the times. It was the the, the situation. It was the pandemic. Uh, but Bernie Sanders' campaign certainly had an effect, and the people that Bernie Sanders brought into the Democratic Party likewise had an effect. And so I have said for a long time. If you don't like the Democrats, get inside, take it over, take it over locally, take it over at whatever whatever level. But you really can't make change from outside one of the two parties. Let's note that the Congressional Progressive Caucus has something like 100 members. So this is a substantial members. force inside the party. And as you say, Bernie had a lot to do with building that. He's had a lot to do with it. Being able to elect younger, more diverse people has had a lot to do with it. And so it's not the party that it was even under Barack Obama, to be honest. And I, you know, I was a, a supporter, a critical supporter, but the party has changed too. And I don't think it's bad. I think it's problematic, but I don't think it's bad. And I don't think it's doing nothing. And I don't think it's equal to the Republicans. Have you met any Republicans lately? <laughs> 
you want to go toe to toe? Do you want to stand on, on the side of, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, I... so a little history here of Cornell. He worked hard to get Obama elected in 2008. Uh, but what did he call Obama once Obama was president? Oh, he called him many things, but a few choice ones that I quote in my piece. He is the black mascot of Wall Street oligarchs. He's a black puppet of corporate plutocrats. And maybe to me, the worst of all, he's afraid of free black men like Cornell, presumably, because of his partial white ancestry, which is such a bizarre racial essentialism. I don't even know how to describe it. And, you know, the Cornell West who calls everybody brother, you know, acts like he is just full of, of love and acceptance to talk about Obama like that. And then to go on and say, you know, there's nothing wrong. He's he's closer to a lot of our Jewish brothers and white brothers than he is to free black brothers. I mean, I, I don't know that that's true. And what you're insinuating is quite ugly and uh, ugly to all of the people involved. And so when he did that, I, that was 2011. I was critical of Obama. That's that's back when he was trying to do the grand bargain with John Boehner and Mitch McConnell. He put a lot of social spending at risk. He cut the knees out from under some of the stronger Democrats who were trying to negotiate. There was a lot to criticize, but in, but those personal the personal invective was really disturbing. And he also tried to promote various alternatives to primary Obama. And, you know, Senator Sanders considered it, but to his credit, he didn't do it. He never did it. You mentioned Black voters. Do you think older Black voters in 2024 will remember what, what Cornell said about Barack Obama? I think some of them will. And I think even those who don't, are not going to throw their votes away on a protest candidate. I mean, that's the thing. Black voters are the most pragmatic voters, and that's because they have the most to lose. So they tend not to take chances on symbolic candidacies uh, or protest candidacies. And they coalesced behind Joe Biden, partly because, you know, the dean, Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina vouched for, for Biden, uh, but also that they'd known Joe Biden. And while we associated him with the crime bill, with you know not treating Anita Hill very well and helping Clarence Thomas to get onto the Supreme Court, we had plenty of grievances. A lot of older Black voters were like, they know that history too. They're not dumb, but they thought he was the most likely to unite the country against Donald Trump. And I think they were right. Cornell has supported Bernie's campaigns in the Democratic primaries, which you and I think ended up being a very good thing for the Democratic Party. In the uh, presidential election of 2016, Cornell supported Jill Stein rather than Hillary against Trump. Do you think Jill Stein's candidacy pushed Hillary to the left? Uh, No, I don't think it had any impact whatsoever. But I do think that there's evidence that she drew enough votes in states like, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, which tragically, unbelievably, Hillary Clinton lost. I think that her criticism of Hillary, as well as Cornell West's and other other lefties of the of the time were not only unfair to Hillary Clinton, but but destructive. Uh, And, you know, I would say my issues with him go back to when he supported Ralph Nader in 2000. And, you know, people can argue all day, all night. I have about whether whether Nader really cost Al Gore the presidency. And it was so close. I mean, really, he only lost by a few hundred votes and maybe he won. That's a whole other thing in Florida. But there's no way that that Nader did not play at least a small role. There were lots of things played a role. But it was it was unconscionable to to trash Al Gore like he was the equivalent of George W. Bush. You know, I think that the people of Iraq would like a word with uh, (laughs) Cornel West and others. And, you know, people like Michael Moore, strong enough, had enough integrity to apologize for that vote. And my friends at the time who supported Ralph Nader, we had I was at Salon and we had a lot of spirited debate. Many of them apologized. It really wasn't very 
smart. It wasn't, it really didn't see politics for what it was. It didn't see that the, the intransigence of the two-party system, like it or not. Cornell West never apologized and he proved that he didn't regret it because he did the same thing with Jill Stein. Now he's running against Biden as the candidate of something called the People's Party. What yeah. is the People's Party? Uh, it's a mess. It's a mess. And it's really attracted a lot of unsavory people. To my knowledge, it hasn't ever run a candidate. Not, not, not just, It hasn't won an election. It hasn't run a single candidate. And it's maybe on the ballot in one state. Florida is the only state where the People's That's Party great. is on the ballot. That's great. That'll be really good. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, the People's Party barely exists, and yet Cornell announced that he is their candidate. It's a kind of a strange choice. A lot of other people, um, his friend Chris Hedges, the news this week is, is trying to get him to meet with the Green Party and perhaps enter primaries. The Green Party actually has primaries to pick their candidates. The People's Party has never had a candidate, so nobody knows how to pick a candidate. And and um, Amy Goodman asked him why he didn't run as a Green candidate. And he said, well, that's a discussion for another day. What do you think of the possibility that, that some people are suggesting that Cornell should run as the Green Party candidate, which is on the ballot in, I don't know, 30 states or something like that? Well, I am on record as not a big fan of the Green Party for the same reasons we've discussed regarding Nader and, and other bids where they basically take votes away from Democrats, meaning more importantly, help Republicans. But I think that that makes more sense since they have ballot lines, since they, they have an apparatus, they have been nominating candidates. I don't know why he wouldn't do that. I don't know who in the People's Party uh, reached out to him to get him to do this. But um, it's just a really suspect, dodgy organization with zero track record and no apparent uh, infrastructure. So why would he, I mean, I would just love to, I would, I don't really care enough to be quite honest, like, <laughs> and there's so much news, but I probably would read, I probably would, John, read a little explainer on who the hell got Cornell West to do this? Because as much as I think it's a terrible idea, I'm not their constituency. And it's probably it's by far the most news they've gotten since they, you know, were founded. And yeah. uh, you know, Nina Turner was was somebody who spoke highly of them, but she didn't run as as a People's Party candidate when she ran for Congress twice in the last four years. She and ran. also also Marianne Williamson spoke at their one big event, but she's not running as a candidate of the People's Party. She's running in the Democratic primaries. Right. So even people who seem to support them and speak for them, when they ran, Nina ran in a Democratic primary twice. She didn't win, but that, but that is what she did. And she would have gotten many fewer votes, I'm sure, if she had chosen the People's Party, and I'm sure she knew it. So another thing I should say about Cornell West, he's kind of a fan of some of DeSantis's moves around the curriculum. Um, he's on the board of, a board of advisors of something called the Classic learning test, which right-wingers, for the most part, not exclusively, um, are pushing as an alternative to the SAT, which is, according to DeSantis, too woke, the college board too woke. Uh, and so Cornell West has also lent his name uh, to some organizations that are discrediting the very idea of critical race theory, that are peddling a return to the classics, uh, as opposed to a more diverse roster of uh, men and women of different cultures that ought to be part of our curricula in this day and age. It's very retro. It's very, it's very mysterious. Since the People's Party is only on the ballot in one state, what effect can Cornell West's campaign have? Very little, uh, practically, electorally, obviously, but it can and already has had the effect of fomenting the kinds of Democrats in disarray storylines that our lazy Beltway media thrives on. That, you know, oh, Joe Biden just has one more problem without people really digging deep into what is motivating Cornell West, what he's done to Democrats <laughs> over the years. 
not a deep dive into either the People's Party or West, but just just another sad example of Joe's not going to consolidate the black vote behind him. And anybody who says that black or white, I know that sounds arrogant, but I'm going to say it doesn't know what they're talking about. Cornell West is going to draw proportionately, not just numerically, but proportionately more white votes than black votes. I promise you, if he ever gets that far. Joan Walsh, you can read her piece, Cornell West Should Not Be Running for President at thenation.com. Thanks, Joan, for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It was fun. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. You might think Republicans would take a breather after banning abortion in the states they control, going after trans kids, banning books about race, sex, and gender, also banning Art Spiegelman's mouse. But no, they've set their sights on a new target, no-fault divorce. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt, of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She also has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. And her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. And earlier this year, she was a guest on The Daily Show on Comedy Central with Wanda Sykes. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Well, you open your new column on no-fault divorce with what you call a fun story about a guy named Steven Crowder. I never heard of him, but I see that the Daily Mail calls him an online personality. Is that the way you'd describe him? That's how I describe myself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'd never heard of Steven Crowder either, so don't feel bad about that. But the important thing about him is that he went viral for portraying himself as a victim of no-fault divorce. And he was shocked that his wife could just divorce him without his permission. Um, Even, he said, in Texas. uh, (laughs) This was shortly before a video emerged, which which also went viral, in which he berated his heavily pregnant wife for, uh, among other domestic failings, not being, quote, wife-worthy, unquote. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, everything you need to know about why we need no-fault divorce is in that little episode. And somehow in your column, you move from Steve Crowder to John Milton, who is not an online personality. (laughs) No, he certainly isn't. Uh, Well, Milton, Milton is very interesting. Um, Milton was one of the first, if not the first, English writer to call for marriage to be not a religious sacrament that would be enforced and controlled by the church and the state, which was in obeisance to the church, but a civil partnership that unhappy spouses could end at will. And Milton knew whereof he spoke because he himself, this is in the 17th century, mind you, married a 17-year-old girl named Mary Powell, and he barely knew her, and he was 34. Um, and today we would call him some kind of a pervert, but back then it was very common. Um, and so she, after a few weeks, she left him and she stayed away for three years. And she stood have, should have stayed away for longer, I might add, because she eventually came back and died in childbirth. Yeah. So, yeah. Very sad. Anyway. Well, uh, getting back to the present, uh, or at least to the last century, we, we know that American women got the vote in 1919. When did they get no-fault divorce? Well, it's interesting because the first no-fault divorce legislation in an American state was signed in 1969 by none other than Ronald Reagan. Then Governor of California. And divorced me, divorced husband. Um, and that, now it's the law in every state. But, you know, I should explain what no-fault divorce is because a yes. lot of people might not understand that. What it is, is it says that if the marriage has broken down, 
one person does not have to prove fault against against the other. It doesn't have to say, well, it's your fault because you were unfaithful or you were mean or you were whatever. So it's really a good thing because before no fault divorce, you were really stuck um, in your marriage, no matter how terrible it was, unless you could prove one of these things. And that led to a great deal of, in addition to other sorrows that we'll get to in a minute, it led to uh, a lot of lying and falsification. I mean, you'll see mo- you know, movies where they set up the husband in bed with someone and then someone rushes in and takes a picture just because you needed to have evidence of infidelity, which was one of the permissible grounds. Um, so it was really a great thing. And it's terrible that the conservatives want to get, some conservatives want to get rid of it. Well, you say it's allowed in all states now, but I read that Mississippi and South Dakota allow no-fault divorce only if both parties agree to dissolve the marriage. And even though California passed no-fault divorce in 1969, took New York State 40 years. New York State didn't get no-fault divorce until 2010. And I also learned that last year the Republican Party of Texas added language to its platform declaring, quote, we urge the legislature to rescind unilateral no-fault divorce laws and to support covenant marriage. What is covenant marriage? Well, covenant marriage is uh, the law in three states now, Arizona, Louisiana, and Arkansas. In these states, engaged couples can sign up for a system in which they agree to seek divorce only for a few handful of reasons. Um, And they basically promise to stay married forever and seek counseling and all that. Um, And what's interesting is that, and it shows you how popular no-fault divorce is, that this covenant marriage thing has been in existence for about a quarter of a century as an option, but only about 1% of couples today. Um, Now, ask yourself, if you are the parents of the bride or groom would you want your child signing on to this? Say, I agree to be trapped forever in a loveless marriage to a terrible person. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Who is more likely to file for divorce now, men or women? Women. And women have been more likely to file for divorce for a very long time. Um, now it's about two, it's more than two thirds. Um, we don't quite know why this is. For example, men leave a lot of things to women. So maybe they leave the filing of the divorce. <laughs> you <laughs> take care already, of it, honey. They're already, they've already moved in with their girlfriend, said, oh, let her settle it, you know, let her figure it out. Now, Jordan Peterson says the reason women file more, are more likely to file for divorce is because women are more neurotic than men. They're always looking on the negatives. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say, let me just emphasize, Jordan Peterson is a online personality, I believe. Well, he writes a lot of books too, but yeah, he's very online. So women are more neurotic. And then I add that given the sexist nature of most marriages, they've got a lot to be negative about. You've reviewed the research on the effects of no-fault divorce. What have scientists found? Well, it's really interesting. They were able to do this because of the long state-by-state rollout of no-fault divorce. So they could separate the effects of no fault, instituting no fault divorce from other things. And what they found is that it led to dramatic decreases in suicide among wives, uh, decreases in domestic violence, and in murder of murders of wives by their husbands. Okay. No fault divorce is a lot better for women, but what about the children? Nebraska In Nebraska, the Republican Party has declared that no-fault divorce should only be accessible to couples without children. Isn't divorce bad for the children? Well, you know, as a divorced person with a divorced mother, I have to say, I don't think that's true. I think that there's a certain amount of evidence that children of, you know, where the marriage is ended do okay children in which a terrible marriage persists are not okay. I mean, it it can't be good to grow up in a family full of hostility and coldness and silence and rage and all the rest of it. 
you quote Jim Daly, head of Focus on the Family, saying, God hates divorce in every case. Does God hate divorce even when there's violence and cruelty? Yes. God hates divorce in every case. He means what he says. <laughs> okay. The wife is supposed to fix the marriage. So what, what exactly does God suggest wives should do to fix the marriage if their husband is violent or abusive or an addict, if they are not supposed to leave? Well, they should be super deferential. They should blame themselves. I mean, hey, that two, takes two, right? And give her husband lots of sex so he'll cheer up. <laughs> okay. Well, I've always assumed that born-again Christians would have significantly lower divorce rates than the rest of us because they know that God hates divorce and the family that prays together stays together. But is it correct that born-again Christians uh, have significantly lower divorce rates? No, actually, it is not. Born-again Christians have a 33% divorce rate and atheists have a 30% divorce rate. So, you know, it's pretty comparable. But isn't this crusade against no-fault divorce really just the pet project of a few cranks? Don't a lot of right-wing uh, fanatics get divorced? They do. They do. So many. Um, most recently, Kellyanne Conway, Lauren Boebert, Sarah Palin, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. They've all gotten divorced. You know, I looked up the stories of each of their divor divorces because I was so interested in your column on this. Kellyanne Conway, of course, was Trump's campaign manager. And oh, and uh, what about him? He got divorced several times. <laughs> I've heard about that, too. Uh, Kellyanne Conway's husband, George, hated and ridiculed Trump, but they didn't get divorced during the campaigns. They didn't get divorced until now. Lauren Boebert has a very wild story. She married her husband, I think it was as a teenager, even though he had exposed himself to teenage girls in a bowling alley and served time in jail for that. She dropped out of high school to give birth to their first child when she was 18. And they got married two years after that. And during that time, he was arrested on domestic violence charges after a fight with her. But she didn't divorce him for 20 years until now. Well, God hates divorce. <laughs> and Sarah Palin didn't want to get divorced, but her husband divorced her. She says marriage is so extremely important as the foundation of our nation. And Marjorie Taylor Greene also didn't initiate the divorce. She was sued for divorce by her husband, according to the Daily Mail, after media, she'd been married, they'd been married for 27 years. The Daily Mail says they, she, he sued her for divorce after media reports revealed she had repeatedly cheated with other men, including polyamorous tantric sex guru Craig Ivey. Wow. What's his phone number? <laughs> <laughs> she, she, and there's a twist to this too. Marjorie Taylor Greene had originally filed for divorce against her husband in 2012, but then they reconciled. And then this year he sued her for divorce. So there's, you know, different strokes for different folks. Really? Well, the important thing is they had the freedom to do it. You know, I don't understand why anyone, including Republican men, would want a wife who doesn't want to be married to them. So what, what do you think is behind uh, this new Republican campaign to get rid of no-fault divorce? I think they want to feel in control, um, that if you can't leave a marriage, you're, especially for a woman, you're at a tremendous disadvantage. And I think that's what it's all about. They don't like the feeling that someone could walk out on them. Divorce has been an ordinary part of American life really since the 70s. So it seems very unlikely that there would be big changes in it now. Well, legal abortion was part of the fabric of life too since the 70s. And now it isn't. Katha Pollitt, you can read her new column for The Nation on the right-wing campaign against no-fault divorce at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Thank you, John.
It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The legacy of the slave family haunts the status of black people in America today. For that history, we turn to Brenda Stevenson. She's the Hillary Rodham Clinton Chair of Women's History at Oxford and the Nickel Family Endowed Chair of History at UCLA. She's best known for the prize-winning book, The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins, Justice, Gender, and the Origins of the L.A. Riots. We talked about that here. Her new book is What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast, A History of the Enslaved Black Family. One more thing, President Biden named her to serve on the Civil Rights Cold Case Review Board, which examines unsolved murders of African-Americans between 1940 and 1979. She testified before the Senate Homeland Security Committee in 2020 and was then confirmed by voice vote in the Senate. We reached her today in Oxford, England. Brenda Stevenson, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be back. Well, let's talk first about the Civil Rights Cold Case Review Board. What can you tell us about that work? Well, that work is just really taking off right now. It takes a long time to set up a committee to get the staffing. And so what we'll be looking at um, initially are cases that have already been digitized by the National Archives. There are more than 100. We'll have our researchers, we'll have our chief of staff, our attorney. And are all of these cases ones that were investigated by the FBI originally? They were investigated, um, both some of them on a state level, some of them on a local level, but most of them um, are being investigated by um, the FBI Department of Justice. Your new book on the enslaved Black family includes dozens of wonderful photos and illustrations. The first one is not of enslaved people. It's the official Obama family portrait, Barack and Michelle and Sasha and Malia in 2011, looking fabulous. A family to emulate, if not envy, you write. Let's talk about that picture and what we know about the previous generation behind it. I wanted to start with an important Black family. I wanted people to see what was a landmark in terms of our ideas about Black family in the United States. And what better family than that of the first family? And Obama's own family background includes a lot of what has been regarded by a lot of mainstream social science as pathologies. Exactly. We look at President Obama's family of birth and we look at his mother and his father and his father was married to someone else at the time that he married, purportedly married um, Obama's mother. And he, of course, was an absentee father for most of President Obama's young life. His grandparents raised him um, to a certain extent. And he also, his mother remarried um, too. So he had stepfather and step siblings. Um, there's nothing wrong with any of that, of course. And so for people that pointed that out as being very negative, his mother sometimes was on federal assistance. And so that hasn't kept him from becoming the first Black president of the United States and having a beautiful family with, a, as I say, double Ivy wife, you know, a daughter who's now graduated from Harvard and another who just graduated from USC and so on, all their wonderful accomplishments. And the next photo in your book is from 1974. A Black woman named Linda Taylor made infamous by Ronald Reagan as the, quote, welfare queen. Yes, that notion of Black women as being welfare queens, as being lazy, as not caring about their children, as not taking care of their children, um, has been used by social scientists, by politicians, by, you know, the everyday person on the street, by the ways in which people interact with Black children in schools um, and also in our policing institutions, for example, to harm Black people. And so it's important that we, you know, we look at that myth and see where it really comes from, uh, what validity there is with it, um, et cetera. 
So your approach is to examine the ways that enslaved Africans and their descendants defined kinship themselves, the ways they experienced it, the way they valued it, the way they maintained it. You start your story in 1850 with a woman enslaved in Virginia named Bethany Vaney. What did you learn about her and, and how did you learn it? Bethany Vini is just one of many, many people who wrote their stories or who had some assistance in writing their stories. And what's captured in these stories is the importance of family. And these people live through all kinds of difficulties. Family members are sold away. Family members are killed. They're sold away. You know, um, they don't have appropriate food or clothing or, or any of those kinds of things they can never think that they would live together with the family or with the husband for the remainder of their lives, um, et cetera. But family still is at the core and the center for this woman, Bethany Vini, she's able to, to get away and she's able to claim her freedom. She takes her son with her. Her son unfortunately dies. But after the Civil War, she goes back to Virginia and she gathers up the remnants of her family and she takes them to the Northeast and they live out the remainder of their lives in a new space that's not defined by enslavement for them and in which they can begin to function as a real family connected to one another, living close to one another, visiting, helping, loving, et cetera. And so I did want to start with a family where there was hardship, but there also was some success at the end. And then you turn to a very different figure, a man named Abdul Rahman Ibrahima Ibn Sori. Amazing name and an amazing person. <laughs> Tell us about him. <laughs> Well, he was an Islamic man who had been captured and enslaved, and he worked very hard to gain his freedom. He was enslaved for several years, had remarried in the United States to an enslaved woman. They had several children. He never stopped trying to gain his freedom and the freedom for his family. And eventually, he is able to gain his freedom with, you know, very miraculous conditions. And he goes back to, to Africa um, with some of them, and he lives out this dream. So this is another story of a person who just never gave up on having his family free. To understand how enslaved people thought about their own families, we need to understand marriage in the family in West Central Africa at the time of the Atlantic slave trade, a big topic. But tell us briefly what we need to know about the African background of this. Well, one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that while there are many, many, many ethnicities and, and different language groups that are fed into the Atlantic slave trade that end up in what becomes the United States of America, there are certain clusters of these people who come from, you know, places like the Senegambia region, who come from Congo, Angola, who come from um, what is now Nigeria, um, Cameroon, Guinea, etc. And these people differ substantially in terms of their culture. Some are Islamic in faith. Some of them are have already been Christianized. Some of them have, of course, traditional African religions as well. And they also have different kinds of marital styles. Some are polygamous, some are you know, monogamous, some are patrilineal, some are matrilineal. There's a great diversity. But among every single group, there is an emphasis on family relations, on kinship, on the importance, how you are defined by your family. And that is not lost in the Middle Passage. And that's not lost in the seasoning process. Oftentimes people say Black people have no culture. They lost all their culture, you know, um, in the slave trade. They lost all their culture in Middle Passage. There were so many different groups. Nothing stuck. That is absolutely not true. And one of the things that absolutely stuck was the value no matter how expressed in terms of day-to-day -day life, but the value of kinship, the value of family, and how that was how one defined oneself. Of course, family life for enslaved people was often devastating, especially in that period when the slave economy shifted from the Upper South to the Lower South and Southwest in the decades uh, before the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of people lost 
husbands, wives, sons, and daughters as they were sold. Maybe the worst part was women forced to leave their children. You have some stories of acts of desperation by some who hope to save their families. From the colonial period, you know, we find over and over and over again in what were called fugitive slave advertisements, the attempts by enslaved people, men, as well as women, to escape with their families. Um, As families are formed, um, that is, people marry and have children, we see specifically this one ran away with her infant. This one ran away to get back to his wife. This one ran away, you know, in order to try to get back to Jamaica because they have family in Jamaica. These kinds of efforts of resistance speak not only to the absolute desire to be reconnected with family, to protect family, but also how families are just across the Atlantic world. I mean, there are people who have, you know, siblings who are in Jamaica or in Barbados, for example, they lose complete connection with them at the time of the American Revolution. We have people in Florida who have uh, have families in Cuba, of course. It speaks not only to this desire for family members to be together, but also how flung across the world these families were. And of course, there's always, as Phyllis Wheatley alludes to uh, in the title to this book, the family that one never regains, which is the family in Africa. The last of your stories of the Black family within and outside of slavery is about a man named Bob Samuels, guy with an amazing memory who told the incredible story of his family in 1936. Uh, We need to talk first of all about where you found the story of Bob Samuels and how come we have that story today? Well, I found that story in the WPA narratives. And of course, the WPA narratives were collected in the 1930s. For generations and generations of scholars, historians would not use these narratives because they spoke to the last generations of enslaved people. These were elderly people. So many decades had passed before, you know, people were trying to get these stories out of them. They come as a part of the relief for the Great Depression. These people were employed to 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 really record American history, um, to give these writers and these, you know, teachers, et cetera, who were out of work during the Great Depression a job. I was reading through them again because I try to read them, all of them, every few years. But I had known about Bob Samuels for a while. His story seemed so incredible. I was reluctant to use it. And I actually spoke to other historians about it. And they said, oh, no, this can't be. This doesn't make any sense. But the more and more, as I got to the end of the book, and I had read so many accounts uh, from all different kinds of sources, I thought, I'm going to give this source a chance. I'm going to put it out there, and I am going to see what people think about it. Because it is incredible, but also surviving enslavement is incredible. The dedication of the book is... For the African girl sold from Virginia to South Carolina and all her kin. Well, I'm one of those kin. Mm. And this is my mother's story that she passed to me, that her grandmother passed to her, not about a person in her grand that um in her grandmother's line, but in her father's line. I would ask my mother, who grew up on a, a what used to be a plantation in South Carolina you know, what do you know about a family? This is as a small child. She says, there was an African girl sold from Virginia to South Carolina. And that's where some of your family come from. And so, you know, this was so many generations ago that this story traveled across my family. We only had that little bit of it. But Bob Samuels talks about how his mother and his grandmother would tell him repeatedly their story. So what is this incredible story? It is that his ancestors were with Hernando de Soto in the 16th century. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. And and they came over as part of de Soto's effort to find gold, gold that had been found in Mexico, the, the precious metals that had been found in Peru. And he had been assigned as the governor of Cuba. But before he wanted to do that, he wanted to say, I I need to go back one more time and try to find this gold. And he took this whole cluster of people with them, hundreds and hundreds of people with him. And some of them were of African descent. And Bob Samuels believed that two of these people were his ancestors. And indeed, let me just interrupt here and say, 
I, like many people, thought, how could how could this actually be right? But you have read here in your footnotes, you've been reading like the Journal of Southeast Archaeology about DeSoto's travels looking for gold in Arkansas, which is where Bob Samuels lived and was telling the story to the WPA project in 1936. He knew the rivers, he knew the valleys, he knew the whole landscape of where DeSoto had traveled. And not only in Arkansas, but also in Louisiana and in Texas and in Florida, his grandmother and then his mother. These people were not people who had been educated. You know, I mean, they didn't read a geography book. They didn't read a history book about Hernando de Soto. This came from their experiences and what had been passed down orally and with these documents from generation to generation to generation. So de Soto, of course, dies in the in the lower south of the United States. We're not sure exactly where he does die. His forces and all the people working for him scatter. And then Bob's family, I believe they, they go back to Cuba and then from there back to Spain. But generations later, they return to Cuba and then they come up with the maps that their ancestors have passed down to them and start again this quest to find this gold. Wrong place, wrong time. Yet again, they are enslaved. And then his mother is born and he's born, et cetera. And it just, the story passes on and on and on to his And he family. can name all of these people. All of he these can answers. name all of these people. He absolutely can. And um, he can point it, you know, if you showed him a map, he could point it out on the map. And he just kept telling it over and over and over again until finally somebody, I guess the WPA people were looking for people who had, you know, stories of their families. And this woman heard about him. And it's an amazing story. Finally, your title what sorrows labor in my parents' breast? Tell us about that. This is a line from a Phyllis Wheatley poem, written at the end of the 18th century. You know, oftentimes Phyllis Wheatley, who is a just a phenomenal person, but she's often sort of thought of as an assimilationist, and she's also thought of as a person who became so embedded in colonial British or American culture that she didn't have very much reference to her her home. Well, she, of course, she was enslaved as a child, as a small child, and then she was taught, you know, English and various other, uh, you know, Western languages, etc. But we do see few glimpses of her memory of her past, knowing that she had a family. I mean, that's one of the few things that she kept, that she had a family, and she knew that her family loved her, and that they would be mourning her. So she says, what sorrows labor in my parents' breasts? She doesn't know, but she knows that it is sorrowful, that it is an enormous loss for them and an enormous loss for her. So despite centuries of slavery and systematized inequality, Black people were able to create family ties that fostered humanity, assured survival, and undergirded post-emancipation progress across the generations. Brenda Stevenson's new book is What Sorrows Labor in My Parents' Breast, A History of the Enslaved Black Family. Brenda, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John, for this opportunity. Now it's time for another episode of Your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Minnesota has joined the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. National popular vote is a way to assure that the presidential candidate who gets the most votes nationwide is elected president. You may recall that in two of the past six presidential elections, the candidate who won the most popular votes lost the election. Most recently, in 2016, Trump lost the popular vote by more than three million ballots, but he became president because of the Electoral College. You know, it's a winner-take-all system for each state. That creates the swing states phenomenon, uh, which means a small, num a small majority in a few states can reverse the popular will of the entire nation. Under the current electoral college system, candidates are forced to focus their attention on only a handful of states, the swing states, 
essentially ignoring voters in all the other states and reducing voter turnout in those other states because everybody knows how those states are going to vote in the presidential election. National popular vote, this is the genius of national popular vote. It works without abolishing the Electoral College, which would require an amendment to the Constitution. In the current Electoral College system, the presidency is awarded to the candidate who wins at least 270 electoral votes of the total 538. But the Constitution gives state legislatures the right to choose how presidential electors are chosen. Since the 19th century, each state has awarded its electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote in that state. Under the national popular vote system, states would agree to award all of their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote instead of the winner of their state. The compact will go into effect only when states controlling at least 270 electoral votes have joined. Uh, that means that after the 270 vote threshold is reached, the states which have agreed to it would ensure that the winner of the national popular vote becomes president. So this would not abolish the Electoral College, but it would guarantee that the winner of the Electoral College vote and the winner of the popular vote are the same person. Minnesota is the 17th state to pass national popular vote. With the Minnesota vote, national popular vote has become law in states with 205 electoral votes. That's only 65 more to go before the compact is activated in the next presidential election and we have the effective end of the Electoral College. National popular voters overwhelmingly popular in the United States, a 2022 poll from the Pew Research Center showed 63% support for national popular vote, 35% opposed. Uh, Democrats support po national popular vote by 80%, Republicans by 42%. National popular vote has a very simple goal, ensure that every voter is equally relevant in presidential elections. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music